record this. All right. I guess I'll just start this off because Calvin uh, has decided to present himself today as the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> it's true. I am the invisible man. There's just a silhouette of me against my curtains, and then the part that's me shows the Golden Gate Bridge. It's uh, rather disturbing and existential. It's a damn shame we're not doing Invisible Man podcast today because you can't see me whatsoever. Or 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 vertigo or something. I don't know. Is this is this just what happens when you go on a trip to, to California? As you come back, you slowly morph into iconic landmarks from the city? I didn't know how to tell you about this thing that happened to me. Um, I've become... Um, I'm, I'm slowly morphing into just like a blob of translucent golden gate bridge I, I i can see uh the increase in inclines on your body god this is this is my worst nightmare calvin's becoming the very thing that i despise the most <laughs> the golden gate bridge no san francisco <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> i've become san francisco next time i'll just be a hill with a house on it <laughs> that'll really set you off very, very steep hill that I'll have to climb. That's that's literally like my nightmare. Like your 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 face is just kind of coming out of the side of the ninety degree concrete, you know, street that leads up in the the housing districts of San Francisco. <laughs> uh, I I feel uncomfortable not being really in the meeting, um, so I'm going to turn this off. Uh, oh yeah, I see why. So you turned it off. It's because uh, you're backlit to fucking hell because <laughs> you're sitting the, in front of a window <laughs> the other thing is this just doesn't have a green screen ability on it so i can't use virtual background anymore but that's fine mm-hmm. so yeah uh you are operating off of a new computer i hear a new uh, macbook air um it's nice light um not so tied down anymore mm-hmm. um that, that's it, also it why you're a, your audio is a little different, I believe. Is it? Is it a little bit different? Yeah, it it sounds like a computer microphone, which you okay. know, it's, it's it's all right. But I think probably because the issue is that uh, the MacBook Air does not come with USB ports in it. Correct. Um. Yeah. That that might be. It. I think I have a couple here on both sides. I don't. I, I, if if I recall right, depending on how old it is. Mac computers have moved to these uh, different ports. I don't know the name of them, of course, because Apple is uh, refuses to be uh, is universal with everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what I had to do when I got my MacBook Pro, my new one, is I had to buy an adapter, which comes with USB ports on it and an HDMI port and an Ethernet port, since they just decided to eliminate all other ports from their computers. Next week, I should have that set up, and we'll be back to a mic on on like a, a table just, in a real setting. Yeah, because of where you're sitting, it's this is literally no better than San Francisco, Calvin, because you're just a dark mass of energy now. It's like a silhouette. Uh, you're 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 a shadowy presence <laughs> talking over me, which sure. I guess is I guess is appropriate for this uh, episode. You you decided to go uh, chiaroscuro for us here. Yeah, I've gone full noir. Uh, I. Happy can you, can you pull your November. blinds down? Um, I need I need to see those Venetian blinds in the background as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've gone full Noir Vember. Despite um, it being Noir Vember, it's also time to celebrate the holidays. I've uh, decked out the whole house. 
um, deck for, the for Thanksgiving. Yes, uh, uh, the no. glorious American holiday where we eat turkeys and uh, spread COVID to everybody through family <laughs> gatherings. <laughs> Happy Turkey Day! Here's your COVID. Uh, this this year, I decided to just start with Christmas because we're basically skipping Thanksgiving. Um, it only makes sense to start two months early um, and, in and November. Go, yeah, and go straight to the other holiday with large family gatherings that can be a super spreader event. Perfect sense. <laughs> I put up the tree. I have a, um, my apartment's covered in green and red, as you can see behind me. There's uh, a lot of green and red. Um, uh, behind the shadowy, massive figure, there <laughs> looms bright, luminescent Christmas lights, yes. Sure. <laughs> Uh, is that, is that, is that an elf running? Do you have an elf on the shelf behind you there? I do. Yeah, staring um, at me. It's, it's very, very unsettling. Almost as unsettling as San Francisco man. Um, an elf on the shelf and Krampus in the chimney, as they say. <laughs> uh, well, I gotta ask since you mentioned it. Are you a real tree kind of person? Or are you putting yeah. up fake tree? I, yeah. I need that real tree smell, and I, that's what I want when I walk in during Christmas time. I want to walk in from you know driving every day and get like that big hit of like that christmas vibe so we haven't actually got a tree this is part of my bit but <laughs> i'm going to get a tree in a couple weeks uh, i i like the part of like cutting one down but this year we'll probably just go to a store and just do our best yeah I, you know i've always kind of wondered what people outside of the pacific northwest do not necessarily <laughs> yeah. in a christmas term just in a general life term because i don't I don't go anywhere else, but uh, I guess to tie it back into Christmas, uh, we have lots of trees here. We're kind of famous for our trees, particularly our Christmassy trees. Uh, they have a name for them, but you know, I'm just gonna go with Christmassy trees. And uh, it's it's definitely a tradition to go and cut down a tree yourself every year. Try and find the largest one you can, uh, force it through the doorway, uh, and you know, kind of make it so that the ceiling, you know, bends the, the top of it. Doesn't matter. You don't need, you know, you can get a twelve foot uh, tree with a nine foot ceiling. It works. And as long as you have your twelve foot skeleton, it'll match. <laughs> yeah, we, we got to tie the holidays together. That's what we're aiming to do here. I'm hoping that Home Depot will come out with a matching Christmas set, like a twenty foot Santa or some like. That, that would be shit. that would be, be cool. actually disturbing, and you should swap them. Then put that up during Halloween. Twelve foot Santa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've gotten in the spirit because there's a slew of Christmas movies coming out, um, and I am that holiday guy. I've I've got my uh, my latte, my Christmas latte with the spices in it. Um, the pu the pumpkin I'm, spice. That's what the do people do? <laughs> they, I, I'm drinking a lot Christmas of Christmas spice. Eggnog. Eggnog, yes, that's this yes. one. But but you don't you don't do the spiked eggnog anymore. Just the regular eggnog. No. That's that shows how dedicated you are to the holiday. That you're drinking plain eggnog. You're not you know spicing it up with alcohol. You know that that shows your dedication. I think. Um, I I'm fully committed. I sound like an alien describing Christmas. <laughs> but what are the things people do on these holidays? Uh, uh, my kid, I think we're going to do like a Yule themed, which you know you have like more days for Christmas, and you're celebrating exactly like the winter solstice, which is like, well, like Christianity just pulls all these ideas together, and they're like, oh, our guy was born the same day as your winter solstice. They they they, they colonized the pagan religions is the way I like to look yeah. at it. <laughs> So we're going full pagan and we already do like the the cramp the Krampus thing like you leave your shoes out and maybe you know maybe they're filled with like a little treat or something or 
Or maybe he takes your kid and beats him with a stick. I think that's like Krampus legend. So you hear heard it here. Uh, Calvin is threatening violence on his daughter if she's not nice this year. <laughs> no, never. Uh, Krampus is. Uh, not right, me, right. Krampus is. Right. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned that we have uh, Christmas movies now, uh, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to tell me about some of them since uh, I know how much you like them? <laughs> Um, yeah, there's uh, Warmest Season, which um, I I talked to my wife when I got this screener. I said, well, what are the lesbian Christmas hallmarks? Like, I'm sure there's a few on, like, Lifetime, but there's there's not any, like, um, there's not anyone that, like, stands out as, like, okay, this is, like, the lesbian Christmas event that, like, the whole gay community could kind of circle around and get, like, a really passionate fan base around. So, uh, okay, hold up one moment. Editorial note, go see 2015's Carol, directed by Todd Haynes. Obviously, there are other Christmas films and gay Christmas films, and I feel this one's a prime example. It bears mentioning, and uh, we need to include that in the show. So, back to the show. Clay Duvall um, directed this one. Uh, it's it's full of good actors. Um, it I feel like it's going to be a big celebration once this review embargo breaks. Um, I'm already seeing like from my friends within that community. Although of course I'm not, I, I get to watch them celebrate something that they love. And, um, and of course I have, you know, family who's impacted by this kind of thing. What is it like to come out around the holidays? I mean, I, I experienced some of that last year, like within my own family and mm-hmm. uh, just seeing how that could either fall out or be accepted is, uh, I see how important this movie can be to someone. Um, uh, we have Dan Levy from, um, Shit's Creek, uh, warmest regards. Um, there's uh, Mackenzie Davis, Allison Brie, Kristen Stewart. So you're getting like major, you know, like lesbian actors and, and um, some straight ones, but uh, you get like Mackenzie Davis and Kristen Stewart, which are powerful symbols in that community now. Um, just, and Aubrey Plaza is in it. I just want to specify real quick that the occasional chuckles you're hearing aren't because I'm laughing at the premise of a a lesbian christmas celebration it's just it's yes. such a specific and like targeted thing that that you wouldn't think to to make i don't know it it, it just it, it caught me off guard <laughs> it it seems ultra specific but it's almost like willed into existence that um oh, if I, I guess keeps I, making these I guess when you describe it as lesbian Christmas movie, it sounds like like exploitative and you know like attention grabbing like that in a kind of shifty it's way. But when it, what when you when you go into detail and say it's more about this struggle of like coming out to a large family gathering and and the the struggle of that that makes more sense. It's like a tactful way of of dealing with the subject matter. <laughs> I I do think it is worth celebrating just doing some difference in the holiday Christmas movie. But yes, it's about the coming out process and uh, it's about girlfriends going to go see their family and then, you know, what happens when they have to say it on Christmas Day. Right, like, because like, when you say lesbian Christmas movie, I'm I more understand. thinking in the tradition of, like, we have to save Santa from something or we have to help him get all the toys delivered <laughs> and, and they're, they're lesbian for non-specific reasons. That's, that's what I imagined when you first no. said it. <laughs> but it's nice to hear no, that it's not something bizarre and, you know, uh, a little exploitative like that. <laughs> it's very tactful in the way that it approaches all of that. Um, I, I really like this one and I felt so warm and happy that something like this exists in the first place. I, I think that's significant. 
And when you get, I don't know, guys like Dan Levy, and, you know, it feels really considered. It feels like they looked at the community and what they needed from a Christmas movie. And then they did all those things. Um, like the coming out process isn't, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's atypical of a real experience, but um, it's more true to what I feel like that must be like. It considers all the possibilities of what that would mean for a person that's doing it um, and what the family reaction could be. I mean, it, it really choked me up and I was thinking, damn, this is a good thing that exists. Like, uh, I'll be coming back to this for sure. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe next year, <laughs> maybe this year, there's still a couple months left. So uh, I, I like this a lot and very specific recommendation, but it's really good. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounds like you've, you've had at least one good Christmas movie uh, early this year, which is more than, than we usually get, I think. Uh, yeah. The, the, st- the stigma... Last year? The, yeah, the stigma of the, the usual Christmas classic or, or, or you know, rendition or the hallmarky kind of crap they put out is that it's just yeah. generic bullshit all the time that for some reason your wife loves to make you watch with her. So I'd say the great thing about this is that it's a good uh, mediator between that and uh, then a actually developed movie like Hallmark or Lifetime or Hallmark, whatever it is, puts out like 60 or 70 movies a year. Uh, and you know that they're not considered and they haven't spent time thinking about the actors and they haven't spent time protecting the characters that uh, something like this, I feel like this is a more careful way to do it. It's coming to Hulu soon. Uh, I think on Thanksgiving, this will be on Hulu. So if you're staying home from family and you want to look at Christmas movies, then That's, this uh, one I think is yeah. this year's. Of course, because everyone knows that it's a Thanksgiving tradition to watch Christmas movies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I started this early. So <laughs> um, I, I hope you can keep up the holiday spirit to get actually through December because uh, you've committed to this bit now and I'm going to hold you to it. Every week we're going to be doing Christmas check-ins. <laughs> Christmas check-ins with Krampus will be our new bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, I know you watched more Christmas movies, so you, you got to tell me about them. Well, there's a uh, fat man. <laughs> so, uh, it's all downhill from there. I mean, we could we could briefly go over these other two, I suppose. Uh, fat man's the new Mel Gibson movie. It's about the war on Christmas. It's like a, a right wing conservative talk show come to life in Christmas form. That's my it's my favorite part of Christmas. <laughs> right, right wing radio. Does does Santa get mad about uh, seasonally themed Starbucks coffee cups? Absolutely, <laughs> it's all in there. He is pissed about Starbucks. Does does like you hear someone say "Happy Holidays" and then he punches them out or something? <laughs> said Christmas, motherfucker. <laughs> this this sounds, by the way, this sounds like a Mel Gibson movie. I just want to say that right now, <laughs> like that is some prime casting. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's not going to be a redemption for him. So, uh, whatever hacksaw. Ridge what what, what would be what would be a redemption for Mel Gibson at this point? I've got to know. Like like hacksaw Ridge was probably the closest thing where everyone's like, eh, yeah. he's still kind of a good filmmaker. But then like the anti-Semitism like creeped up again, and yeah. uh, and, and you're just like, oh no, he's still the same. Uh, okay, well, I guess this is just the way things are. Yeah, uh, I I feel like we're in a weird place with Mel Gibson, whereas with others, they're still like in a a recovery phase or how do I come back? Uh, Mel Gibson kind of just came back and was still an asshole. It would, it would be kind like of a rare thing. It would be kind of like if Robert Downey Jr. 
still had the career launch with the Marvel movies, but was still doing heroin all the time. Yes. <laughs> it would be the Iron Man on heroin. That would be a good that would be a good thing. I mean I mean I'm glad for his recovery, but that would be fun. Um there's uh yeah, I don't know. There's Walton Goggins. He he's always fun and everything. I mean he's just, you know, doing kind of his character. Um but this is such a bad movie and it doesn't have any movement or plot. Um like it's about the war on Christmas, but it's also anti military in a weird way. Um, uh, Chris Kringle, played by Mel Gibson, now has to contract for the military and make toys, uh, or make uh, military uh, devices. So Christmas has been canceled, and uh, it's about a little boy who loses a, a contest for a science project, and he calls up a hitman uh, to go get Santa because he's been bad and received coal. So, uh, That's, that sounded horrible just describing it. It does. It does sound horrible, just like from beginning to end premise wise like i don't know like maybe there's something in the in the cynicism of making santa part of the military industrial complex but like it it seems gross as well at the same time uh may, maybe not the right way to have your to do your comedy uh it, it doesn't go anywhere with any of those themes like it doesn't touch on them there is like a big shootout at the end which is also part of its conservative values that every movie would have to end that way with guns yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess like its military critique is sounds like it's half-hearted at best. <laughs> I wouldn't even say there's half a heart there. I I feel like that's just like a premise for a thing that happens. Uh, it's not something that's explored. Nothing's explored in this. It has no curiosity, uh, no heart to it. Alternatively, I would like to see a movie about uh, you know, like the the GOP or whatever, like raging against Santa for like his socialist values or his support of, of China or something <laughs> like he's okay. still, he's still out here. Like he's not putting on tariffs to China or something and <laughs> like, like getting mad at cause, cause Santa is like such an, it, it would be perfect because Santa's one of those things where we've like tried to co-opt him as an American icon when he's a, a universal, you know, uh, idea and, and shared, but it's still one of those things where it's like, nope, America's totally, you know, owns Santa Claus. Look, he drinks Coca Cola. He's here at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. He's a bona fide American, like Jesus. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you've got to be an American like Jesus if you're going to get anywhere in, in this society. Uh, there's a. Well, I feel bad now because of what we went over with, like. <laughs> The lesbian film part, but uh, there's a. You you need both. You need both ends of the spectrum to to balance each other out. You know, we've got our left wing Christmas movie and our right wing Christmas movie, so that uh, everyone's got a little something for the holiday. My problem is that now we have Jingle Jangle, which is an all black cast in a Christmas movie, but it doesn't go anywhere, and I feel badly critiquing it. It's maybe not for me, and maybe there are families that are going to love it this year. But uh, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Keegan Michael Key. There's a, a mostly black cast here, and it's a lot of CG bullshit. And uh, uh, just this is what you expect to come out for like a holiday family film. You need one of these, and then you need a real one every year. Then you need an exploitative piece of trash. That like we have our exploitative Mel Gibson. Um, then this one, which is what you expect for kids, just a cinematic uh, CG bullshit. And then uh, Happiest Season, the warmest movie of the year, possibly. Well, yeah, I guess there's a 
So it's right. I'm just surprised to hear there was a good one at all, and it's and it's kind yeah. of interesting to me. I'm 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 fascinated by the disaster that Fat Man sounds to be, <laughs> though I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, Fat Man may be the most interesting failure of the year. Like I can't think of many others where I had where I was at least I, interested in an expectation that could be different. I don't know. I still think, uh, n- like, how can anything top New Mutants as the worst, you know, <laughs> release of the year? Did people even remember it came out this year? <laughs> finally, it it came out today on video on demand. Actually, did it? <laughs> yeah, I believe so. I I still don't believe it's real. I I haven't heard anything that makes me believe that it is. Yeah, you know, apparently it went to theaters, but uh, at the time when nobody was going, and. Uh, <laughs> Even now that it's on demand, I didn't even know it was on demand. You know, you'd think that would make some kind of headlines, but I I think Disney's just ready to get rid of it any way they can. I think I'm pretty likely to to like a good Christmas movie as long as it's pretty competent. Like last year, I liked Last Christmas, and the year before that, uh, Christmas Chronicles. Uh, also, Claws last year. So there's there's a there's a new bulk coming I, that's trying wish, to establish you know, it for this generation. I wish you had the same enthusiasm for Christmas movies when you talked about Jack Frost with me last year. <laughs> like, it was more fun to side with bro on that one. Uh, no, but like you, you, you crushed my heart a little bit. And so now I have to be the Grinch this year while you get to ride this Christmas high. <laughs> um, well, I have two months left to do it. Uh, so I, feel, I feel good about where we're at. Um, there's surely going to be a Christmas movie every week we're talking about. Uh, I'm sure if not, you'll go out and film one and distribute it yourself. <laughs> the Twin Geeks save Christmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> what else? There's one other new movie that, that could be worth talking about if you want to go into it. Sure. I assume um, that you're going to tell me what it is. <laughs> well, it's a new movie, uh, an animated new movie. Um, it's pretty good. Uh, you want to give your, give your thoughts? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I'm just pulling up a page here. Uh, Wolf Walkers <laughs> is the new movie from Cartoon Saloon. Yeah, see, I was I was literally about to say that, and you took my thunder here. Uh, Calvin actually cut off my mic in the recording while I said it. <laughs> um, Wolf, I, I don't know how you feel about Cartoon Saloon. Have you seen any of this? Um, uh, of course I have, but... Uh, you know, uh, you, you've just managed to edit it so that I sound like a bumbling idiot right now. So I, I assume this is because you want to take the thunder and, and just talk about all the movies here. So go, go ahead, whatever. So Song of the Sea, one of my daughter's favorite movies to watch at night. I, I put it on for her before bed all the time. Uh, it's, their, their movies are so hypnotic and they're celebrating their own culture, which I really like about them. You're just um, you're just parroting what I said earlier. Now it's true. I I cut your mic so I could just say what you're saying. Uh, this is another one from Tom Moore. Uh, Wolf Walkers is also a really special movie that lives within its own heritage. Um, it's so much better than the Frozen alternative of one of these. Um, it's nice to see someone doing something either at or above the level of '90s Disney. So uh, it's it's fun to see someone else doing something, and it's more mature. I mean, it's it's an adult story for kids. There's uh, uh, good kids movies can often be that uh, made for everyone. I mean, that's the Pixar deal and why they're so successful is their movies are universal and have themes that might last with you your entire life. Um, and this one's about a wolf pack that uh, invades an Irish village. Um, 
and one of the girls within the wolf pack she switches between young girl and wolf and um they take uh one of the daughters at the place uh and they they make her into a wolf so it's about their adventures uh it's about parenting and uh, when to let your kids go and when to know uh, your place as a parent to uh, either step in or you know let them explore uh, i'm looking over some of the images here uh from after when i watched the film and just gave you a lengthy description about it and uh, i just wanted to highlight uh, the great you uh like backgrounds that they do in the the drawing here the the character designs obviously like very modern style uh but i really you know i loved the uh detailed and kind of atmospheric backgrounds that they have uh with the film here it's a lot like secret of kills so you have a lot of foreground and background work and you're mixing between these things and there are some images where you're looking at them and you're saying like that it's such a clever thing to design like animation often just has like one plane that it exists on right like uh you're given like that um aesthetic and then you stay like within that plane but to have like you know multiple um ranges of shots and uh, you know it, it just feels different one of the things that, that's definitely the the case is that i think disney has homogenized animation over such a long period of time like their singular yeah. style their house style that we forget how experimental and different and like the variations of animation that are out there and available uh you know so it's just one more reason to uh rage against you know the the conglomerate machine of animation <laughs> yeah absolutely i think animation has the most unlimited potential of any uh art form if it's used properly so uh, cartoon saloon are one of the purveyors of that like uh, they make the most interesting looking animations around i think uh, there's you know there's technically interesting things going on i mean like you have like kubos and everything but something about the way cartoon saloon stylizes between like Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, and Wolfwalkers. They're the best looking animations around, I believe. Yeah, I, I agree fully, certainly based on, uh, I, I wish everyone could hear my in-depth assessment of Wolfwalkers. I keep cutting you. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, this is, I guess this is what I get for not taking a more prominent role in the editing process, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Cal Calvin's the one with all the passwords to everything, so... <laughs> True. I haven't let you in the system and I keep cutting your mic. Uh, no. So, uh, so if you're ever wondering why I sound like a, a buffoon on this podcast or I trip over my words, it's because Calvin meticulously goes through the episodes and finds all my awkward pauses, just like kind of the natural, yeah. the, the brief times. And he'll often insert them uh, with repetitive use to just make me sound like I'm stumbling all over myself all the time. I'll just, I'll just take a, a few key phrases years and just cut your audio track and just insert them. Like, uh, oh, yes, Calvin, I agree. And then I'll just keep putting that in, looping it. I'm glad, though, that you've uh, managed to delete any of the racist remarks that have popped up before. That's that's at least uh, why I keep coming back. Yeah, a lot of racism. <laughs> no, uh, never been a problem. Well, uh, speaking of uh, highly racist remarks uh, oh, God. on a podcast, <laughs> uh, Billy Wilder. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a very racist uh, podcast guest last time we had him on. Uh, it didn't help that he's been dead since the 2000s. Uh, so. That was also why it was so shocking when we had him on. That's why it was controversial. Uh, he should have got a life insurance policy. Yeah, but uh, so this is our formal apology to uh, the Wilder estate uh, for 
We also apologize for calling the podcast wild and out. That was insensitive too. But yeah, so to, to make up for it, uh, we've decided to talk about one of his uh, great uh, filmic works here today. Uh, probably the first true masterpiece from him, Double Indemnity. Um, double Indemnity. Um, as you would say, Double Indemnity is an indelible film. That's your favorite word. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mouthful, putting those three together. Um, it is. Have I, have I actually told you that? I don't know. Or, or is it really just that I keep using it? <laughs> I, I feel like it's one of your keywords. It right? is. You have like it four is. or five that, that I like that you use uh, consistently and in, indelible in, in one. I feel I feel actually embarrassed that it's it seeps through my my writing that it has it's come up that often. I'm I feel a little on the spot and accused right now. You've turned bright red. Right? <laughs> a little bit. Because you're not the only one. My my fiance's pointed out too in in my usage oh, of, of it a lot, and I do because it. It's it's a really good uh, utilitarian word that yeah, that, that that sounds very nice. Uh, I can use it in very uh, alliterative ways. Uh. <laughs> well, this is our uh, seminal um, indelible film of the week. I'm just I'm just gonna go back to using two dollar words from now on. <laughs> That's what I do, so nobody can find anything. Um. <laughs> I use the simplest word I could think of, and then you know, occasionally I'll use a word that I like. So. But yes, this is uh, the second Billy Wilder film uh, we've chosen to talk about on the podcast, uh, mostly because I am. Oh. I'm old because I'm I'm metering it out. I don't want to just okay. inundate the podcast. I could literally talk about Billy Wilder all day because I I, I think I'm right in saying that he's my my favorite filmmaker one of the best filmmakers of of all time he has such a, a lengthy list of of classic films even his poor films or, or kind of later films they have interesting things to them they're wilder-esque in the number of ways and uh, i've seen all but but one of his which i've only been able to find on like vhs before is his last film but well, i would which I, one's that it's called uh, Buddy Buddy. It was the third... Okay. I don't know uh, that one. Yeah, it was the third collaboration he did with uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. The first two being The Fortune Cookie and The Front Page. Okay. Um, but, but this is this was really like the, the first, uh, m you know, major success of his uh, directing prowess. I guess just for a little background... Billy Wilder was a, a writer in Hollywood first, and uh, you know some of his most notable works there were with uh, Ernst Lubitsch. He did two films for Lubitsch, and he did uh, he wrote the script for a uh, Howard Hawks film, which is really great as well, uh, Ball of Fire. And uh, he made the transition to directing uh, around the same time that other writer directors like uh, Preston Sturges. Uh, cropped up uh, by saying, you know, I'll direct this this one. And he chose a comedy film knowing it would be successful uh, called The Major and the Minor and that allowed Paramount to keep letting him direct movies. And then uh, this was his, Double Indemnity was his third directorial film and it, you know, was a smash success. And uh, it helped become one of the definitive films of uh, film noir. And it's, so interesting because it leads with its writing it still feels like he's a writer first even when he's directing he's directing his own writing um and, and it feels that way like it feels like he's directing dialogue to the screen and it, it reads like nothing else ever does i mean 
there's there's such a singular voice and it comes through here i think i think this is the earliest example where i'm like wow that's like that's a vision and voice and that's an ear for dialogue Mm-hmm. And and I think that's true of all of his films, even the ones that he didn't Absolutely. personally direct. But uh, it's interesting because uh, one of the other notable things is that while while Billy Wilder is an auteur in the truest sense, uh, he he definitely was always collaborating. He was a collaborative writer. He had uh, two mainstay writing partners throughout his career. In the first half, he worked closely with uh, Charles Brackett on you know films like uh, Sunset Boulevard and uh, The Lost Weekend, and then later on you know some of his more you know famous films as well, where he was really making uh, smash pictures one after another was with I A L Diamond on uh, Some Like It Hot and The Apartment and such. But this film, Double Indemnity, is one of the times where he didn't collaborate with either of them. Uh, Charles Brackett actually refused to work on double indemnity because he thought oh, really? it, yeah he thought it was like a like too too dark or too you know like, like he didn't like the crime aspect of it and the murder and all that so he refused to do it so instead uh he partnered with uh raymond chandler to write this i mean and, that's a magnificent pairing it's not even a raymond chandler book so no it's it's a it's a james m kane novel who was another uh prestigious um crime novelist at the time, like Chandler. But uh, famously, Wilder and Chandler uh, did not get along in the writing process. Uh, they, they didn't. So what they, happened? Uh, you know, Billy Wilder is something of an uh, antagonist to, to people. You know, okay. he, he is kind of a prodding sense of humor. And uh, his work method was just very different from Chandler's. And Chandler's was a very irritable person. So, like one of one of the famous stories in their collaborations is that uh, Chandler like threatened to quit over like such you know, innocuous things. Like he he was totally uh, like taken aback and felt while there was disrespectful for wearing his hat while they worked. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's so specific, but uh, I like how strong these personalities are. I, I imagine there's a fascinating like book there just in their process. Yeah, and but so they didn't get along too well, but their collaboration was was fruitful because it really is uh, such a fantastic and uh, you know indicative work of, of film noir, it, down to every last little detail. You know the the dialogue is I think particularly Wilder esque, but the the story nature you know has a lot of Chandler aspects to it, of course, that really uh, shine. Uh, and and just seeing all these kind of influences and Double Indemnity is actually one of the identifying films of film noir, not just because of its characteristics, but because it was literally named as one of the defining films when the uh, when the when the French uh, designated the the term, they they nominated a number of films from this time period because they all came in in like the early fifties is when all of these films mm-hmm. arrived because of course they were occupied by Germany at this time when in 1944 when Double Indemnity came out so the likes of Maltese Falcon Double Indemnity Laura and uh such you know really had this uh different spirit to to the films of course this more atmospheric bleak cynical tone to them with this beautiful expressionistic black and white photography that the movement was identified uh at that point and Double Indemnity has become like basically the the flagship film of the entire film noir style and i you can see that in it i mean you could feel the identity being formed around it it feels like such an exciting jeff Jason point 
and it's so fun to look at something like that, like the French dubbing a movement and then the impact that will have on their 60s work. Like after yep. you get through like the 50s and the 40s American films, you're going into the 60s and you're realizing that like it's not just the impetus of like one genre, but it affected the entire filmography that followed it. I mean, uh, a whole movement like that can't help but to do that. I mean, you'll get like early Godard thing and there's, there's so much DNA of all this in there. And and of course, like the interesting thing with, with film noir and other like movements is that kind of continual chain of influence of things because of course, film noir is highly influenced by the German expressionist movement of the, the 1920s with their highly stylized, you know, shadowy presentations and such. And, you know, so there's, there's definitely that uh, unmistakable influence that comes in on, on noir and merging with the kind of crime gangster genres that was around in the 1930s in Hollywood. And then, of course, with the uh, backbone of, you know, the, the crime novels by the likes of Chandler and, and uh, Kane and such, uh, it all just coalesces into this beautiful, unique, you know, vision that lasts from the early 40s up until the late 1950s, uh, and then has its kind of resurgence in the early 70s with the likes of Chinatown and uh, such, and, uh, you know, films of that kind of ilk. It seems so obvious to say that our genre successes are the things that have impact overseas because it's a huge bulk of hugely successful films. But mm-hmm. there is something to it that uh, the, the films of, that foreign audiences might have uh, latched onto are like musicals, and then you go like uh, noirs, westerns, and yeah, um, it's you know, like superhero films today. Like, these are the international successes if we have a lot of them. And and film noir is definitely one of the, like the specifically American genres. You know, we, we yeah. can, just like those other two names, like westerns and musicals, like all three of them, you know, they're they're distinctly American in nature, and that's where their influence derives from. But they're also informed by a, a series of other things, like like we said here. And I think film noir is probably the best example of that conglomeration of all these different things coming together to make this unique fusion of something you know totally uh surreal and, and new and lively and it's done and, and a lot of it is birthed from necessity and and the lack of resources you know film noirs were notoriously cheap sometimes you know or like their use of shadowy lighting was to cover up the the fact that they didn't have a lot of resources and such but even in big productions like double indemnity here which you know was a huge front runner for paramount in 1944 it, you know it still carries on those those stylistic identifiers and utilizes them for you know artistic purposes there couldn't sound like anything drier than making a film about like insurance and uh, insurance fraud but it's so sexualized and stylized that it's immediately uh, it's immediately it just grabs you there's there's really nothing like double indemnity and like that hook it has uh, right away. I mean, just the actors and their sexuality, it explodes. Yeah, so, uh, and and that's one of the other great things, so of course birthed by limitations. Film noir, you could easily identify as like a continuation of the more, you know, innuendo-laden and kind of brazen films of the pre-code era where they found ways in, in dialogue and suggestion to work around the restriction of the Hayes Code and uh, nobody did it better than, than Billy Wilder. That, that dialogue of his is so salacious, so great. My my favorite scene in the movie, my favorite line comes from that first meeting between uh, Walter Neff and uh, Phyllis Diedrichson. 
where she she comes up like she's uh you know he he greets her at the bottom of the staircase and she right. she comes down and he, he's like i just wanted to make sure that you were covered and because it, it's got that <laughs> yeah uh, do, that double meaning to it because well, he's trying to sell insurance thing, there's that thing where the most sexual thing is that there's like a detail on her ankle or her foot or whatever right like she mm-hmm. has a thing on it and so he's obviously looking there and it establishes that through context it's, oh, it's really good at like setting up that sexuality there, there's the great bit about like going over the, the there's a speed limit in this county <laughs> there's that yeah. line where, he, where he's he's going way too fast and but he's he's laying it on thick and and like that's the thing and, and it's another one of those interesting things where like the there's something you, you've got the warp perspective of the narrator here who's kind of like he's he's kind of thrusting the blame on the signature femme fatale here that she like lured him in but really like he was he was looking to do this in in so many ways and that's the kind of interesting duality of it here like there's definitely a, a deviousness to barbara stanwick's character and that she's kind of manipulating him with her sexuality to do this to, to commit this crime uh but at the same time he's he's not trying to resist at all he's very enthusiastic about it it's basically he constructs the whole plan and everything and and you could tell from yeah. the first meeting he's like i'm gonna fuck this guy's wife <laughs> it's true uh we all stand stanwick by the way that's uh one of our platforms of the site is that we all agree on stanwick I, I hope we can put that in a banner over over the header, header of the website. We stand Stanwick. We'll change. We'll change the slogan. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm 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 all for that because Barbara Stanwick is uh, perhaps the the most uh, l- illustrious actress of the the golden age of Hollywood uh, for for so many of her her great performances roles. But this is one of them for sure. Like one of the Barbara Stanwyck roles. This might be the one, right? Like I, I think now of the Lady Eve, which is recent Lady. for me, but I feel like this is the major. Thing. Like, like it's it's like she's got this great, this great Uber. Like you, you could point to any one of the films. Like I, I have a huge yeah. Yeah. Uh, love for Ball of Fire as well, which I talked about earlier. Which you know, in which she's so commanding as well. But this is like she she really embodies that like uh, i i believe her throughout this entire film to a point where like i am i am walter neff watching the movie yeah. or i am entirely seduced by her and will 100% commit murder just to be near her i'm and and i won't won't even realize that she's manipulating me to do it <laughs> I and the movie is is so seductive i mean even watching it that that's what i mean like it's a, it's about like insurance liability but but it's also the sexiest movie you know there's there's a lot going on. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely a contender for sexiest movie uh, ever made because it is it's all about the sex in, in so many ways and they really make it about that in, in the kind of implicity of the dialogue and you know everything going on. But it's it's beyond that. It's not just sexual, of course. It's a thrilling crime mystery film at the same time and, and it's this uh, kind of like pulsating, uh, you know, tense... Uh, you know kind of cat and mouse game particularly with the the way in which the insurance investigator with uh edward g robinson's character is set up yeah and now he has this innate sense to sniff out you know this fraudulence i, lo- I love that idea that he's got this he's got this little man inside him that can just tell when things are going <laughs> it's just a little thing and it's, and it's silly but it's great and he, and he sells it so well <laughs> absolutely there's a there's a thing where it's it's sort of like a mystery noir but it kind of tells us up front what 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 they want to do, what's going to happen, and right. 
and like the mystery and like the the tensions are avoiding you know getting found out it's not will they or won't they it's how will they yeah, well, it's one of the key tropes of film noir is that that kind of flashback structure with the narration over top is that so they set up the conclusion up front there. Like, you know that uh, Walter Neff is is dying and laying out his confession for keys. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're still watching and, and like kind of cheering him on to get to get away with it or wondering how he's going to get caught and all this and whatnot or how close things go. One of, one of the best examples of it, of course, is when... Phyllis comes to visit him and uh, as, as she's about to, to enter the door, Keyes comes down the elevator of his living space and hey. she hides She hides behind the door as he opens it up, which uh, for, for anyone who's not kind of sucked into the film will realize the logical fallacy of that because doors don't open outward like that. <laughs> Right. They had to. They had to literally like put the hinges on the outside there to make that bit work. But you're so interesting in, thing to do. You're so yeah. entrenched in the movie that you don't notice such an obvious, like glaring, like logical issue like that. It's. But but now that I know about it, I I, I kind I of caught have. on it. I'm well. I'm I'm sorry that I've I've ruined it for you now. Because it's a great but scene. Think of it. Yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense when you, when you think about it. Like, why? Why would a door be like that? Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like the the actual logic and everything works so well, though, and that's why the film works for me. I mean, like, the plotting is so perfect. There's, I don't have any, like, obvious flaws to point out in this movie. I, that's, I that's, don't have anything to criticize. Exactly. The door thing is the only one, and it's, and it's such a... That's the only flaw. Yeah, it's, and it's not even, like, a uh, an issue. It's a contrivance to make a, a scene work. And it's a great it's, scene, so I'll, I'll let it slide and happen because the moment you get from it is, is so uh, great because it creates that very tense moment. But it is a contrivance to do it. <laughs> it is an issue that you have to go out of your way to design. <laughs> but but like that. you said, you didn't notice it until now. I didn't notice it until I read about it somewhere, really. Right. And I was like, ah, shit, no. Now I know about that every time I'm going to see it. So, how does this stack up for you? I know this is like one of your favorite noirs, but among Wilder, how do you oh, feel? <laughs> the, 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 the tough part is that Wilder has so many good movies, so many yeah. great movies, so many masterpieces that this is not even in the top three. <laughs> it can That's be sometimes. It can be sometimes, depending on the day, but it, yeah. it really varies because you have such great comedies like Some Like It Hot and The Apartment we talked about, which has this great blend of pathos and drama with it as well. And you yeah, have something course. that's the the brilliant embodiment of cynicism itself, like Ace in the Hole, which is this fantastic scathing critique of the the media and you know this this human greed and then you have like sunset boulevard which is like the most brilliant you know uh portrait of hollywood and you know the transition like the the echo of the the silent era and stuff with these great towering performances and another amazing embodiment of film noir uh itself so double indemnity uh you know, I, I always kind of go with what uh, TCM's uh, Eddie Muller has said about the film is that it's, you know, it may not be necessarily the best noir, like there might be better examples out there, but it is the defining example of film noir. It is everything that film noir is, it embodies it to a T. Uh, so while I have uh, other films I might prefer over it in some instances, there's there's like nothing I can point to that is 
you know, uh, any kind of faults in the film. And even if there are other Billy Wilder films I like better, uh, it's still the, you know, one of the greatest. Like, this would be any other director's greatest film by a significant margin. Absolutely. And it, I, I feel like it, it's funny to say it's top five for the director and one of the best of the movement. <laughs> like, yeah. We're saying that every other director that did film noir is someone else's fifth best film that, that they made. So mm-hmm. that's, Look, that's incredible in itself. Looking at it here, like other, other films, other film noirs that I might value over it are like Out of the Past, which does so many of the same things that film, uh, that Dublin Demity does just, you know, to to an extra step as well in in its ways. Uh, Touch of evil. I think that's I think that's my thing. First on uh, first on the one you just mentioned. Oh, yeah. Out of the past is that I feel like that's a superior noir. So the only reason I might kick this down at least like half a point is that it's a there's a more entertaining noir out there that I like a lot more. Yeah, and but it it, dialogue. it came after. It's the thing is that I I don't know yeah, that yeah. out of the past exists without double indemnity setting the it standard doesn't. for so many things. That's the thing. Uh, and you know so. And Out of the Past does some things differently, of course, but, you know, it's it's still, you know, indebted, I think, to Double Indemnity in some ways. But then, like I said, there's Sunset Boulevard, which, it, it you know, depending on what you value in a film noir or in a movie in general, you could say either one of them is better than the other, I think. Uh, you know, personally, being my favorite movie ever, it, I, I couldn't say that Double Indemnity is better than Sunset Boulevard, but... You know, it would be hard to make that argument for me. It is like again, like for for Billy Wilder in, and that's in a, a six year time frame, made these two masterful, definitive film noirs. How how does one do that? Uh, <laughs> and this is yeah, like, and, I mean, and another great thing about Billy Wilder is that these are just his dramatic, serious films. Billy Wilder is often more credited for being a comic mastermind, you know, yeah. with films like Some Like It Hot or The Fortune so Cookie and such. One thing I do want to say about like the noir of this is that even the sexuality is funny. I mean, there's, there is a humor to everything in Double Indemnity. Just the premise itself is, you know, just like what they're coming and setting up could be a really funny premise. Mm-hmm. It, I feel like the tension, it's like the same as like horror thrillers, like, uh, the the difference between like comedy and thriller is just punchline, and I think that's what it gets. I th- I think one of the the best things about it is that it sells you on the idea. Like, I, at no point do I necessarily feel like Walter Neff is is inept. In fact, he's an incredibly intelligent and smart character for orchestrating this crime, and and mm. it's not like you know, like I don't feel like he's greedy in the moment necessarily for trying to get more money by going for the double indemnity clause, which is essentially like they're going to kill Dietrichson's husband while he's on a work trip to get double the payout. Uh, because he's, he seems, you know, he's so clever and constructed about this. Like the plan feels so, um, you know, without holes in it, but of course it's, you know, it's never going to be the perfect plan. Uh, but if, if anyone could have pulled it off, it was him. And I bet if I was in his shoes with the same skills, I would, I would make the same mistake. I would give in to my, you know, hubris and think that I could do it and get away with it and keep the girl. I mean, it's, it's Barbara Stanwyck. I, I think we all, <laughs> it's, it's hard to avoid that. Conclusion, I would, I, I would, I would simp for her so hard. You have no idea. <laughs> uh, there's, there's also the thing where it's just, such an effective deconstruction of an American system, like our, our insurance sales, like uh, the way that we're always sold insurance is that uh, we really need something in case something happens, but we're often just paying 
uh, for something that won't happen. I mean, the, I, well, I, the ideal for an insurance salesman is that they sell us something we're not going to use. Well, and That's you and you can see the the uh, the kind of the corporate capitalistic nature of it here, where Keys is the type of shrewd businessman who's so intent on not paying out, you know, that he's going right. to go to desperate lengths to expose, you know, these these fakeries and such, you know, <laughs> that that it is really just a, another greedy system to prey on, you know, the the, the vulnerable. <laughs> I think it's just emerging at an interesting time for America where people are thinking about like their life insurance and what's happening post-war. And there's, there's just an interesting confluence of like history and um, just uh, American capitalism and business there too. Oh, and it's such a, like, again, it became such a staple of that genre then that you've seen this idea, you know, parroted and parodied so many different times, this idea of, I can get away with murdering my wife and keeping the insurance for it. Like that, that's a staple thing, even though it's an inverse of, of this, it's still like kill her for the insurance money, kill him for the insurance money that starts with double indemnity as, as, as the like influencer in media. I'm sure people actually did it <laughs> first. Yeah. And that's where James sure. King got the idea. Yeah, I'm sure someone had to have done it for them to have thought of it, but, or they found the possibility, but there's the, uh, it's such an easy hook for a story to, I mean, it makes sense and it's captivating already. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and it's so, again, like, like, uh, hypnotic in the way, in the presentation there from, from beginning to end, it's, it's got this, this perfect pacing, this, you know, uh, beautifully like enrapturing dialogue. Uh, it, again, it's so laden and quick witted. Uh, it's, you know, and and sumptuous and it's got this like surreal environment that is really indicative of of film noir it feels like a hazy dream throughout it uh, a little bit unreal in in places and so it really creates this you know uh you know half you know alluring half nightmarish you know world with which to kind of engage in and then you know wrap yourself with uh, you know, the only other things I, w- I would definitely say is like, you know, we've we've talked about the the great performances of it. Uh, you know, the the cinematography I think is something we overlooked a little bit, but you know, it's it's yeah. definitive uh, way in which to uh, showcase with the the shadowy lighting and the Venetian blinds, which are of course a major staple. You see that in here, like Maltese Falcon and such, which really like define those sharp, shadowy lines and stuff. Um, one of my favorite moments in the film, which I think is a brilliant cinematic choice, is the actual murder of Dietrichson's husband, where mm-hmm. he's he's hiding in the backseat, and then he goes to, like, uh, strangle him. And then they just they cut to Barbara Stanwyck's face as she kind of, like, reacts in horror, just kind of looking straight ahead at, at this, this deadly crime being committed next to her. And they don't show it at all. It's it's that, you know, off-screen. More, yeah, it's more effective to get the reaction yeah. than the actual shot brilliant moment and then there's of course like the tension of the car not starting afterwards right. after they dump his body like just just that brief yeah. moment which is uh that i know that was inserted in the script one day after blue wilder had an instance where he like his car wouldn't start one day and so that kind of gave him the inspiration of like having this moment it's almost like this signal like this you know uh divine signal that things are going to go bad for them you know that this is this is a hiccup that they they couldn't plan for the car not starting and even though it does eventually it's like a uh, a warning of what's to come i love how easy it is to build into our anxieties about cars there's 
<laughs> I think of like something like Scorsese, like Irishman, like he, he goes to like turn the key and you, you wonder if it explodes. Like, yeah, I, I love that kind of tension, like starting the car, it won't start. You, or this, you know, which kind of a callback to the beginning of Casino, you know, which right, starts yeah, yeah. with the exploding car. But yeah, yeah Del- I can remember if that was Casino or one of the others. But yeah. Oh yeah, with like the the bad. Uh, it looks like a fake in the opening casino. Right. <laughs> but the title sequence is really good. That was one of Saul Bass's last ones before he died. But yeah, um, double indemnity. It's just such a a, a masterful definition of film noir. Uh, it's great uh, from from top to bottom. Uh, is is there one scene in particular that stands out to you, Calvin, to leave us with? Uh, nothing that we haven't covered i think i think the reaction to the death and i think just like the sexuality at the beginning and her coming down the stairs is my favorite part yeah that that beginning with her coming down the stairs it's that's what's immediately hooks me like like i'm i'm taken in the same way that that walter neff is by it and you know what's so so i let's say i've seen this movie like four times now and so that's the part where i just like sat like black jaw just watching the whole thing like i I couldn't step away from it. I thought I'd watch like, you know, like half and just like catch up this morning. And <laughs> no, I, I had to sit through the whole movie. That's like that definitive point where you're, it's like hook, hook line and sticker. You're, you're just in. Yeah. And uh, I, I, sh- I shudder to think of another film that has such a gripping and, and immediately like magnetic moment like that does where right. you, you are like, I've, I've never felt more like a character in a scene than Walter yeah. Neff being you know, transfixed by Barbara Stanwyck wearing a towel at the top of the <laughs> banister there. I that's that's when I've been most transported into a movie, I think. Yeah, and I mean I think of it like it's it just keeps coming up in movies. Like I had watched like Bonnie and Clyde right after and it's like that opening where she's like up top on the stairs and looking down like uh, double indemnity like created these moments like uh, in so many movies where you just want that shot of the woman that's going to be like a femme fatale opening the, the picture. Yeah. And I, I guess that's one other thing to to touch on is that she does have that magnificent turn to be the callous femme fatale towards the end where it was kind of this orchestrated and manipulative plan. But yeah. uh, in, in other film noirs, like that's, that's like their character the entire time, whereas she really is right. this two faced character that you don't realize until the end. And no matter how often I, I know that, I'm still tricked by her every time at the top of that staircase. Absolutely. And uh, that's such a draw. And I think it shows that there's a range of acting here. Like, it's it's not just the great words of a script, but it's Barbara Stanwyck maybe doing a career best and uh, the most enticing version of herself. So uh, and, uh, I think and, it's an actor's movie, too. Yeah, and, and also to mention Fred McMurray, who... Um, who we also talked about in the apartment, uh, but yeah. he he was way more known uh, afterwards for his roles, busy being like a Disney dad. He, he did a lot That's of like, yeah. TV shows and stuff and he movies did? for Disney. Yeah, yeah, he he literally worked okay. for Disney, and that was kind of his you know regular paycheck work. But like as as a film actor, his two collaborations with Billy Wilder are the defining things in his career. They're so obviously different. Like especially this. Like he's yeah. he's he's such a like you know seduced and you know uh almost kind of horny character but but in yeah. the like the alluring way not, not not like in a grotesque way he's definitely he himself is like i would i would argue is as much an alluring you know object of sex as mm-hmm. barbara stanwick is in, in his own ways 
you, I think you, they play off each other into that conversation. I think you need both of them to create the dynamic. And definitely. They work so well. And and Edward Bar- Edward G. Robinson as well. He's so great. He was usually a leading actor. Uh, and yeah. he kind of he he took a smaller part here for just the the, the great role of Keys. And uh, even like small people peppered throughout. Like one of my favorite guys is a. Uh, Porter Hall, who plays, he's he's the guy who recognizes Walter Neff on the train. Right. He's a great character actor that pops up in a bunch of Billy Wilder and Howard Hawks films and stuff, and uh, and Preston Sturges movies too. And he, he's a great character actor if you keep noticing him in all these films. And he always, always stands out. Hmm. Well, I feel good about this anyway. I'm so glad we've got it on the podcast. Yeah. It is well, definitive and only one Wilder's nonsense. I know we'll definitely get to more. I just I, I want to make sure I don't flood us with Billy Wilder films because I could literally talk about them all back to back to back to back. Um, <laughs> we have to spread out our favorite directors. So we'll be back with Romer season next week. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again, Calvin, for coming here for for Billy Wilder. Thanks for dressing up in your silhouetted outfit for me here. <laughs> Thanks so much and Merry Merry Christmas to you and your family. I hope a happy new year. Happy new year to you, Kelvin. (laughs) I hope it's fruitful and that you drink all the eggnog. I'm going to be signed off this way for a month. It's going to get real old. Mm -hmm. Uh, Time to go through the ham in the oven, right? That's right. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows A turkey and some mistletoe Help to make the season bright. Tiny tots.